Everyone pictures huge corporate announcements looking, uh, well, looking like, like this. Um, incredible, world-changing products that are introduced to adoring fans and worshipful employees. But have you ever been a part of a big announcement that just fell flat? Um, everyone's summoned to the big reveal, but things go wrong. Um, like this, I want to show you a, a big gender reveal that went kind of sideways, all right? This is a gender reveal gone flat. Oh, here we are. <laughs> oh, Meg, strike out. Oh, not her. Oh, no. Wait, just wait. This is the best part. Yeah. <laughs> and his brother just laughing in the background is horrible, isn't it? Um, that, is, that is more than a little like what happened to the Babylonian emperor Nebuchadnezzar. Open your Bible, Daniel chapter 3, to the great Babylonian reveal, the great product reveal in Babylon. Let's read uh, Daniel chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made a gold statue 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to assemble the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to attend the dedication of the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces assembled for the dedication of the statue the king had set up. Then they stood before the statue King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Stop there. As we headline in your notes, uh, you got a bulletin when you came in. There are notes in there. This was almost certainly inspired by a dream. Back in Daniel chapter 2, we learned that the emperor had a dream about the, the march of history, specifically what the Old Testament calls the times of the Gentiles. Th these are different empires who are going to rule over Jerusalem as foreign powers, controlling the destiny of the Jewish people. We'll, we'll discuss that more in depth uh, another time. But in his dream, Nebuchadnezzar is told that he is the head of gold. He is the preeminent one of these empires that make up the times of the Gentiles. He also discovers from Daniel that the Gentile kingdoms are all going to eventually be destroyed by Messiah's kingdom, which will govern all the earth from Jerusalem. But now that he knows his place in those times of the Gentiles, Nebuchadnezzar shows a shocking lack of humility. Instead of taking the whole dream to heart, aligning himself with the God who will send Messiah, instead of appreciating his exalted position and resting in his ordination by God, this emperor has an entire statue constructed. And it doesn't just have a head of gold. The whole body of this thing is gold. It is, it is almost as if this fool is looking at God and saying, you can't limit me to just the head, baby. I'm the whole statue. I'm the whole thing. Look at this. Isn't that amazing? He is just incredibly Prideful, no stone's going to smash my kingdom. By the way, don't assume it's a human statue. The, uh, the 10 to 1 ratio, you saw that, right? 90 feet, 9 feet. It, it, that would be very odd. If this was a human, it very likely would have been Etruscan-inspired. The Etruscans, who were dominant in Italy at this time, they loved, of all the peoples of the world, they loved to make these elongated uh, human figures. It could have been an anatomically correct human statue uh, in the traditional Greek style where it was a beautifully done anatomical statue, but on a very high pedestal. So the 90 feet includes the pedestal. It, it very well could have been, given the dimensions, an Egyptian-style obelisk. I think this is most likely. Uh, in his conquest of Egypt, this emperor had seen numerous obelisks, and he may have made his own. 
It could have been any of these because there was a great deal of commerce among all of the Mediterranean states. Even smaller city-states like Athens and, and Tarquini in Italy, they all had commerce with Nebuchadnezzar's great massive Babylonian empire. Whatever the form of the statue, it is certainly desired, listen carefully, it is desired to appear greater than Hammurabi's stele. That's the big deal here. Look, look up here. Look, this steel is probably the most famous statue ever erected. It, it is one of many that were planted all over the old Babylonian empire. 1,300 years before Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Hammurabi had inherited an empire that controlled all of the Fertile Crescent. And, and what he did was he took a bunch of disparate city-states that were powerful but not really connected necessarily, and he bound them into one empire. It was the old Babylonian empire, the first truly great empire in world history. And do you know what bound it all together? He bound it together with these statues that were erected all over. We have a number of them, and they listed his laws. He used the rule of law to bind the whole place together. That's what's on his carved statues, by the way. That, that text on there is, are the laws of his empire. And that's why even 1,300 years later, when our story is going, Hammurabi is considered the greatest Babylonian ruler of all time. Now, given everything we know about him, I think Nebuchadnezzar was trying to unify his new Babylonian empire by doing Hammurabi on a bigger scale. As Shrek would probably say, Nebuchadnezzar's compensating, right? And this desire to outdo previous rulers, you know this is part of the human psyche, right? That's why in 1990 A.D., 2,500 years after Nebuchadnezzar, a guy named Saddam Hussein, who was the dictator of Iraq, which is basically Babylon, he issued these coins. Look at this. This is Saddam, right? Anybody know who that is right there? That's Nebuchadnezzar. He issued these coins to make it clear that he is the new Nebuchadnezzar. He was doing the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar did to Hammurabi's memory. In fact, in fact, Saddam held, the back of the coin has this music thing because he held a giant international music festival that was designed to trump Nebuchadnezzar's music festival that's in the next paragraph. Read the next paragraph, verse 4. A herald loudly proclaimed, People of every nation and language, you are commanded... When you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, your default fell down and worship the gold statue the king Nebuchadnezzar has set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and every kind of music, people of every nation and language fell down and worshiped the gold statue the king Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Nebuchadnezzar's big idea is to unite the empire in a, in a big convocation, a big gathering. It's dedicated by a convocation. By the way, Saddam Hussein, when he read this passage, he called this Nebuchadnezzar's Music Festival. The Ba'ath Party dictator made a huge point in 1990 when he had that festival. He made sure to get 100 artists from all over the world because that was more than Nebuchadnezzar ever had. He didn't have 100 international artists. And I know this not just because of the news, but because a friend of mine was there. A friend of mine who is a Bible scholar, a brilliant Bible scholar, and cannot play a lick of music, pretended to be a flute player. True story. He pretended to be a flute player so he could get into Saddam Hussein's International Music Festival because he wanted to see the comparison with Nebuchadnezzar, and he wanted to sneak into Babylon and see the archaeological work that was going on there, which at that time was close to us in the West. Nebuchadnezzar has real musicians, unlike my friend. Uh, look at him. Wind string, reed instruments are all going to play in concert. The convocation is announced. The officials gather on some plane. Don't, don't be misled by the word Dura. Dura is actually not a place name. 
It's an old Aramaic word, a royal Aramaic word that just means big flat place. Okay, that, that's what it means. Um, eight classes of subordinate officials are summoned to this big flat place. Now, the language indicates this was to be a show of absolute solidarity, everybody within the empire. The officers are really important. Look at the listing there. First are the satraps, all right? These are viceroys. They rule in the emperor's name. Um, by the way, this was, a, this was not an, a, an Aramaic word. It's the only part of this passage that's not a, a royal Aramaic word. This is actually an, a word that was from Persian and Greek. We don't know which language made it first, but they both used it before Nebuchadnezzar's time. He borrowed the word. And here's why it's important. It's a word that implies a semi-divine status. Okay, the emperor's considered divine or at least mostly divine. These people are so important they're semi-divine. Okay, that's the satraps. Uh, prefects are military commanders. Governors are civil administrators, same way we use the word governor today. Uh, advisors are counselors. Now, these are almost always priests. They're priests of various temples uh, around the city. Treasurers, uh, when you see treasurer, don't think a bookkeeper. This is somebody who raised funds, who set taxation levels, who managed public works. It's a lot more like a city manager in our, in our day. Um, judges are the legal administrators who did, who did law. The magistrates are what we call judges, people who decide cases from a local bench. And rulers of the provinces, those are various uh, client kings, city-state leaders, uh, other, other countries that all pay tribute to Nebuchadnezzar. All of these different people gather. Now, the presence of satraps and the use of the word worship brings up a really important point. This whole show is not merely political. It's also religious. I, I know this is hard for us to grasp, but, but the religious-political combination is actually the norm through human history. That's the norm, that, that everything is a religious-political combination. We think that's odd, but I will tell you, the idea seems to be coming back in modern America. Just, just think about this. If you don't bow to the religious fervor of whatever the political cause du jour is, whatever the social issue of the day is, if you don't have religious-type fervor for that, you will be cast out. Now, I know what you're going to ask. Everybody asks this, what about Daniel? In your, um, in your donkey imitation from Shrek, you're saying, what about Daniel? Was he there? Was he off eating waffles? Right, that's what you want to know, Eddie Murphy, and it's a great question. Thank you for asking. That'll do, donkey. Daniel was in a position over the satraps. We learned that in chapter 2. He, he is higher than the semi-divine guys, okay? So, so either he's not required to be there or he's off doing work somewhere else, or if he is there and he doesn't bow, no, nobody's going to accuse him. Does that make sense? He is higher than the highest people listed here. His Jewish friends, however, they're governors. Uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, they're governors, and so they're required to attend. That will prove very important. And their situation is made worse by this, this last group, the rulers of the provinces. Let me, let me explain. No, take too long. Let me sum up. Um, Jeremiah 51:59 seems to indicate that Zedekiah, who was the puppet king of Judah, he had to attend this convocation here in Babylon. Now, according to Jeremiah, Zedekiah's trip to this assembly or to some assembly in Babylon occurred in his fourth year. That's important because the fourth year of Zedekiah is one year after a major failed rebellion attempt back in Jerusalem. You got it? This is one year after they unsuccessfully tried to rebel against Babylon. And by the way, against God who told them not to do so. So Daniel 3 probably lines up with this trip and Judah's king. And Judah's king went to bow down to the idol with all the other provincial rulers. 
This is another aspect that's really hard for modern minds. But, but in, in most of human history, when the ruler bows down, when the leader bows down, then everybody else, all of the constituents are considered to have bowed down by proxy. Only the Reformation began to change that idea. The point is, these Jews who serve Nebuchadnezzar, they are in a perilous position, especially if they don't join their own king in bowing down. They're in hot water before the orchestra even starts up. And things just get worse when the real enemy hatches a plot. Look at verses 8 through 12. Some Chaldeans took this occasion to come forward and maliciously accuse the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, and this is how they spoke, May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music must fall down and worship the gold statue. Stay with us, king. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. There are some Jews you have appointed to manage the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men have ignored you, the king. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you have set up. Now, they are almost surely motivated by jealousy. Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are singled out as spoilers of the king's grand reveal. They're the balloon that won't pop. Referring to these Jewish young men by their given pagan names, these nasty New Age nuts, that's what the Chaldeans were. They were, they were New Age before New Age was cool. They point out that these guys are the governors of the most important province in the empire. The jealous implication is, is that the home counties of Babylon deserve better than having these rebellious Jews in charge. It ought to have better leadership, like, um, like maybe Chaldeans, for instance, right? The, 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 these Chaldeans, they are malicious. Look up here. The Aramaic term we render maliciously is achalu. Achalu is a word for devouring. This is a really mean word. We, we use the term in a similar way today. We usually use um, devour like, like a halu like this when we're talking about courtrooms or sports, right? We'll say, um, that lawyer ate that witness alive, right? Devoured. Or we'll say, the, that defense devoured our quarterback. Now, we use this in a much more figurative sense than they are. These people, these Chaldeans, they really want these Jewish leaders killed. This is wicked. Of course, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't notice their wicked intent because they're so fawning. They cry, oh, king, live forever. Now, I've mentioned before that's a particularly goofy Eastern formula that, that makes the king something divine. But the point isn't goofy at all. The point is allegiance. In a world where kings didn't keep their thrones very long, to wish the king to live forever is a pretty tidy way to declare that you're not part of any conspiracy, which, of course, is a lie. These guys, look, as Chaldeans, they are advisors, Right? All they really care about is getting these people who are over them. That's what they want. They want to erode the power over them. They seem like friends who are, who are guarding the king up here, his authority. In reality, they're the real enemies, not just to the Jews who are over them, but to Nebuchadnezzar himself. But, oh, my goodness, these Chaldeans, they are so politically savvy. Remember, this isn't just religious issues. The church-state relationship means this amounts to political treason. Look at the verbs. Ignore you. Do not serve. Those are political terms. They're stated in a way that appears to be concerned for the emperor and his great unification plan. In reality, their only concern is their own advancement. A leader whom we'll call uh, Javier, he told me about some similar experience in his business. Um, a downline manager made an appointment with Javier about his boss. Came to talk to Javier about his boss. His boss was vice president and, by the way, was a direct report to Javier. 
And, and this guy came, and the manager told him all about how this VP is eroding Javier's authority all the time. He is just always against you. He's not on board. He's not our... My favorite line was he, in his stuff he'd written up for Javier. He said, he's not our kind of guy. And he had a whole bunch of emails to prove his point about how this guy was an insurrectionist. He, he had all these emails. Javier took all this data, and he very wisely said, thank you. I'm going to look into this. This is very serious. And he began a very thorough investigation. He didn't just take the word for it. He began to really look. And what he discovered was that the VP is actually incredibly loyal. What he found was these emails had been very carefully doctored so that they read as if the VP was a bad guy. He's actually the good guy. He came to recognize as he went through this, the only really troubled person was the downline manager. He was the problem. He was the one who was regularly undermining Javier's instructions. The root cause was jealousy because that manager wanted somebody else's power. Javier refused to take the bait, and by the way, he told him, you're fired. Now, let's see if Nebuchadnezzar is as wise as Javier. Verse 13, then in a furious rage, uh-oh, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, and every kind of music, fall down and worship the statue I made. But if you don't worship it, you will be immediately thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. And who is the God who can rescue you from my power? Oh, dear. No thorough investigation of all parties, no careful research, just, just bowed up bullying. As we put it on the right side of our notes, a continual enemy takes the bait, and that enemy is Nebuchadnezzar himself. Nebuchadnezzar's biggest enemy is himself. He jumps right into the trap here because of two besetting sins in his soul. First is anger, specifically anger born of insecurity. He is in a furious rage, but it all comes from his insecurity. Look, look at it. The, the whole big stage, the threats to force unanimity, those are classic signs of insecurity. Now, I know none of us are at all insecure, right? We Christians, we picture ourselves exactly the way we are in Jesus, right? We picture ourselves as, as justified by God's grace alone through faith in Jesus alone, right? We picture ourselves as, as being transformed by His grace from glory into glory, and yet we also know and we recognize very clearly that we still have the flesh this side of heaven, and we have to battle against that in our sanctification. We see clearly, right? Always, right? No. No, probably not. It's just barely possible that you and I don't see clearly all the time. It could be that we're actually a tad insecure in some ways. That's why we do things, that's why we do things that cause us to sin in anger. That's why we yell at the kids. You yell at the kids because of insecurity, right? You're terrified for them or you're embarrassed because you're on the great plane in front of everybody. They've made you look like a bad parent, right? We, we, we do this stuff because we are insecure. If you struggle with anger, and frankly, most people do, be sure to examine your security in Christ. Remember, anger is very often born of fear. It's born of insecurity. If you deal with the insecurity, you can avoid the sinful expressions of anger. Here, let's practice. Look here. This is what Jesus says of every single person who believes on him for salvation. Every single one, Jesus says this. Read it with me very robustly, or I'll make you do it twice, all right? Um, John 10, 28, all together. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. All God's people said, amen, amen, amen. 
With that kind of security, we can avoid sinning in our anger. Nebuchadnezzar's second problem is pride. His pride leads to folly. Now, this is no surprise. You, you guys know insecurity and pride are actually just two sides of, of the same coin. Uh, each insecurity and pride decides to base understanding of self on self instead of on God's Word. I, I love his fake calmness in verse 15. Do you look, look at the heavy malice. This is worthy of a mafia dawn. Now, if you're ready, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. All right? And the obvious pride comes through, right? Who can save you from mine, huh? Nobody. Right? I, I actually picture Steve Jobs uh, doing this. Anyone who didn't applaud at every part of one of his iPhone reveals, I, I don't know that he ever did this. I just picture him when you'd, who can save you from my... I, I, now, whether Mr. Jobs struggled with pride leading to folly or not, he's not alone. We all make the same mistake much more often than we realize. Look at this. Great insight from David Wade on our pulpit team. He wrote me and said, Wayne, Nebuchadnezzar is a character study in pride. We desire to set ourselves up as gods and refuse to turn from our idols even when we have sufficient revelation from God to know better. In Daniel 2, 36, Nebuchadnezzar is told, The God of the heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength, and glory. Yet he sets up his idol anyway, demanding everyone bow to his idea as if his authority came from himself. In the same way, we know that everything we have is from God, yet we still indulge conceits about our own wonderfulness. Far from fearing God's loving wrath over our idolatry, we are wrathful when people won't bow to our ideas, our plans, our feelings, etc. Close quote. Very well said. But our Hebrew heroes won't bow. The real friends civilly disobey. Look, verses 16 through 18. <clears throat> Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. But even if he does not rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. You know, what we call civil disobedience today is a pale shadow of this. There are two things that set their defiance apart. First, they show excellent theology and a crisis. This is so rare. When, when, when people are faced with a life-threatening situation, we tend to develop really warped ideas about God. We, we start, um, oftentimes we'll start bargaining with God as if something we do could make Him love us more. Um, I'll be good forever if you'll spare my gumdrop buttons, right? That, that's, we, start, we start making these deals. Or we get so angry about the fact that we're in a threatened situation, we look at God and we say, you can't rescue me. I knew you wouldn't. You never come through for me. Right? We've done this, Okay. Maybe the creepiest one that I hear is the uh, making excuses for God, which usually comes out in a really warped, unbiblical theology with a, with a form of, well, well, God couldn't have, he couldn't be held accountable because he didn't know, right? God didn't know, so, so there's no way he could save me. He didn't know what was going to happen, right? This is sick, folks. There are other variations on the theme, but the point is always the same. When we are pushed, we, we rarely think biblically about God. The only thing we can imagine is getting what we want, so we become rather, rather pagan. In contrast to us, these three Hebrews kept their heads straight about God. Look at their excellent theology. They confess that God is utterly sovereign. That's why no answer needs to be given to the emperor. By the way, don't, don't think that they're being snarky in verse 16. They're not at all. It's actually, a very, it's actually a very serious statement that, that you're our king, but God outranks you. 
This is why you and I never have to explain Christian behavior. God outranks everyone. They declare that God is not only sovereign, He can save them. He has the power to rescue. We need to remember that when we are presenting our own requests to the Lord. He is mighty to save. And they recognize, this is amazing, that God may choose not to rescue them. Now, that's a clearly scriptural idea, but it is very hard to live out in the crunch. When God doesn't do what you want, and and what you want is, is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's very hard to say, blessed be your name, whether you give or take away. That's really hard, but that is exactly what Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah do, which leads to the last point of their theology. They refuse to worship anything other than God. They will not join commanded sin. It doesn't matter that the most powerful man in the world has demanded it. They will not join in idolatry. The great lesson from their childhood taught them this. Idolatry leads to heartbreaking suffering. Their country was destroyed. It was akalu. It was devoured all because of idolatry. They saw horrific destruction all because of idolatry. Unlike the dummies who still keep rebelling against God's word back in Jerusalem, these boys have learned the lesson. Now, the form of their refusal is really intriguing. They do not insult the king. They simply remind him that they don't need to make an excuse. This has nothing to do with earth. And the earthly ruler is still their king. However, he has no right to force earth onto heaven. This is really impressive. And I want to tell you, this is one of the most impressive things to me about some high-profile converts to Christ in in this century. When when these people have been confronted by those who tell them to keep quiet, just, just keep a low profile so you don't ruin your career. You know what these people do? They just step up and they speak more loudly. It's It's very impressive. Now, it is important to note that these Jews don't go looking for trouble. They're not seeking persecution. In fact, they they were totally unobtrusive. Nebuchadnezzar didn't notice. They didn't bow. Seemingly nobody really noticed. It was not a big deal at all. It it wasn't until the, the Chaldeans brought it up later that it became a big deal. The Chaldeans had to go back and check instant replay and then ruin the whole season, right? They, they, they had to... Sorry, that came from a place of pain. Um, they, 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 have to, they have to go back and check things and make sure. They, they have to confer together. Now, verse 8, when they bring this up to the king, when they bring it up later, this, this is... The experts tell me that verse 8 is really difficult to translate. One of my favorite scholars renders it this way, and I think this is quite fetching. He says, in the the Royal Aramaic, he says, here's his translation. Now, before another season, some Chaldeans came forward to maliciously accuse the Jews. The key issue there is before another season. They felt the need to move quickly to highlight this disobedience while the cultural moment was still hot, before another season came. This is exactly what happens in every culture where forced obedience tries to make everyone bow down to the idol of a day. The people who hate a certain religious group, whoever they are, they want to jump in and persecute that group while they can, before the cultural moment changes. And when the bad guys, when the bad guys grab that moment, things heat up. Go to verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gave orders to heat the furnace seven times more than was customary, and he commanded some of the best soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. So these men, talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, in their trousers, robes, head coverings, and other clothes were tied up and thrown into the furnace of blazing fire. 
Since the king's command was so urgent and the furnace extremely hot, the raging flames killed those men who carried Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego up. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the furnace of blazing fire. Verse 19 is fantastic. The old royal Aramaic says, the emperor's face was altered. Have you ever been so angry that your face was altered? That's what's being described here. This is, this is a man with an anger problem who has lost all reason. He is so hot, he has gone insane. Now, thank goodness we never do that. You know what we do is we, we rarely admit to, to uh, face-altering anger. What we do instead is we talk about pet peeves, or we talk about dumb people who drive us crazy, right? You all have pet peeves. You ever think about what that phrase really means? It means something that peeves you, that you're petting. You're stoking this. It's just like a fire, We've got to be more self-aware than Nebuchadnezzar. If we nurse our grievances, which is what pet peeve means, it alters more than just your face. It alters your judgment. That's why the brick oven gets employed against these subjects who are actually loyal. Nebuchadnezzar was a great builder. He built with brick-fired, glazed bricks not merely sun-dried bricks as was the norm in the world. He had these very large kilns constructed in a number of places around Babylon to make long-lasting bricks. By the way, his, those bricks are still around today. In fact, the, the bricks of Babylon were so famous and so strong. Get this, okay? After Nebuchadnezzar, not long after, a prophecy in the Bible, which we'll talk about another time, comes true, and Babylon is abandoned forever. It's not, it's not lived in. A thousand years later... I mean, in 1000 B.C., 1,500 years later, the caliphate that had taken over the area that we roughly call Iraq and Babylon, the caliphate decided they wanted to build a new, a new capital city. They called that city Baghdad. And if you go to Baghdad and go to the oldest buildings that are now 1,000 years old in Baghdad, you're going to find there are bricks just like this all over the place. They were carted from Babylon to Baghdad. They, by the way, that's Nebuchadnezzar's name right there. Um, they, they have a, a lot of the things we know about Nebuchadnezzar are from these bricks. And they brought them in because they were so superior to anything they could make in 1000 A.D. All right. The normal temperature of the kiln that made these bricks was 1,600 to 1,900 degrees Fahrenheit. Nebuchadnezzar, by the way, had used that kiln as a convenient place of punishment before. In fact, long before him, so had Hammurabi. Um, Jeremiah 29 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar took two false prophets and he threw them in. They, they would, were thrown in from the chimney up here where all the, the heat is. Um, the door down here, it wasn't really a door, but it's a doorway. The door was where you would throw in the fuel, and, and he dropped the people in there. Now, here in Daniel chapter 3, the emperor is so mad that his face alters. He has the kiln heated seven times higher. By the way, that's an idiom. When you see seven times more, that just means as hot as it can go. That, that's what it meant. It's so hot, it kills the guards who are taking the men up to the top. The men he calls Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Uh, they're thrown in through the flue. Where all the heat comes out, speaking of heat, there is a fascinating literary connection here in this text between Nebuchadnezzar and the furnace. Each of them gets really hot, and that heat gets the wrong people killed. Remember that about your anger. It gets the wrong people killed. Pete the emperor loses some top soldiers just because of his rashness. But the Hebrews are spared when God intervenes. Verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar jumped up in alarm. He said to his advisors, advisors, remember, that's the Chaldeans, that's their level. These are the guys who set all this up, the real enemies. He said to his advisors, <clears throat> didn't we throw three men bound into the fire? Yes, of course, your majesty, they replied to the king. He exclaimed, look, I see four men not tied 
walking around in the fire unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the door of the furnace of blazing fire and called out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you servants of the Most High God, come out! So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire. When the satraps, prefects, governors, and the king's advisors gathered around, they saw the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Not a hair of their heads was singed, their robes were unaffected, and there was no smell of fire on them. Wow, this is an undoubted miracle. You know, it's always fun to read the accounts of people who try to find natural reasons for obvious miracles. This is one of the best passages for that. Here's my favorite. My favorite is a German scholar who claims the three Jews were not harmed because they must have stood in a cool spot. (laughs) There are no cool spots in furnaces that are heated to thousands and thousands of degrees. And, And besides, how do you explain the fact they came out not smelling like the inside of a pizza oven? I mean, they would have had to. This is a miracle. But the biggest miracle is in verse 26. Nebuchadnezzar yells through the roar of the charcoal, you servants of, whom does he say? The most high God. Remember, the whole point of their civil disobedience was to show that they serve God above man. And here the emperor, to whom they are literally enslaved, calls them slaves of God. That's the real cool spot in this story. You know what this would be like? This would be like the state of Oregon apologizing to some artist that they persecuted because that artist served God first. And I know you modern people are going, that's that, that, that never going to happen. Boy, it's not. Oh, really? Listen, if, if God can smooth a stone heart like the emperor of Babylon, and he can change anybody's thinking. Amen? And the Lord is there. He is there. He is present either through an angel or through a theophany. A theophany is a fancy word for an appearance of the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. And God's presence changes everything here. Don't you wish that were true for us? Don't you wish that God were present here with us in our, in our loss, in our cancer diagnosis, in the winter of our souls? Wouldn't it be nice if we had the presence of Jesus the way that Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah did? Wouldn't that be great? Yeah, I hear you. I hear you. In your Lord Farquaad voice, you're saying, of course we Christians have that. Yes, we do. What does Emmanuel mean? The title given Jesus before he's born, what does it mean? God with us. And the very last thing Jesus said before he was ascended into heaven, what did he say? Everybody read it with me. Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Amen. Okay, let's finish our text. Verse 28. Verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar exclaimed, praise to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He sent his angel and rescued his servants who trusted in him. They violated the king's command and risked their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I issue a decree that anyone of any people, nation, or language who says anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego will be torn limb from limb and his house made a garbage dump. There is no other god who is able to deliver like this. That's actually a formula that was used in the Babylonian Chronicle, but I just love it. I think it's my favorite curse of all time. Then the king rewarded Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. All is corrected here in this denouement. Uh, Four things happen here. First, God is praised. Isn't that cool? Now, Yahweh is not again referred to as most high. In fact, 
God is wrongly referred to in local provincial terms as if he's just another part of the Babylonian pantheon. Still, still, God is praised by a non-believing dude who previously was very antagonistic. Secondly, standing up for right is rewarded. There's no doubt about the issue. These men of God were, were persecuted for valuing God over man, right over wrong, principle over political expediency. And now the chief instrument of their persecution ends up rewarding their stand. The Bible never promises this kind of reward on earth, and no temporal reward compares with the ones that are promised in heaven. But still, it is rather nice, isn't it, when standing up for right is applauded by humans? Presently, I have to tell you, I'm very concerned for Western civilization because stands like this are currently receiving much more derision than applause. Just one of thousands of examples. Uh, Isabella Cho is a, was a student senator at her university, and um, a, a vote came up before the student senate that was a pro-sin vote. It was, a, it was all about how good this sin should be, this particular sin, no matter what it was, it was a sin. And uh, Isabella decided, as a Christian, she really felt it was not strategic for her to be involved in that, so she abstained. She did exactly what our three Hebrew heroes did. She didn't vote no, she didn't yell anything, just abstained. And just like our heroes, that's not good enough. She was told that she must bow down and was removed from the Senate because she wouldn't bow down. People who value God's Word above all can face really tough sledding, but that right stance will be rewarded in eternity and sometimes on earth. All God's people said, here's a chance that Isabella will be listening to this on the podcast, so can we applaud her so she knows she is not alone? Third thing. Third thing that occurs here in the anticlimax, the king extricates himself from the trap. This is really important. Nebuchadnezzar has many flaws, but he's not stupid. He recognizes who the real enemies were in this scenario. He likely even knows that their anti-Semitism is part of their wickedness. So he establishes a formulate decree that keeps him from ever having to deal with this nonsense again. He really does clip the Chaldean wings for good here. Of course, a more permanent step would have been to deal with his own pride and insecurity. Right, that would be the best thing to do, but he's not quite there yet. And so that's the fourth thing happening here. The next story is set up perfectly. I mean, it is set up perfectly. So come back next time, all right? For now, let's pray. Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will have the courage to refuse to participate in sin, that we will not bow down to, to our own sin nature or to anyone else. Lord, we pray for humility. This takes great humility. Poor Nebuchadnezzar lacks at this point, and quite frankly, often so do we. At least I do, and I think it's true of my friends as well. Lord, we pray that we can recognize what really matters, who is the real God on the throne, and we will humbly and joyfully serve you. And I pray that you will protect us, that you will guard us in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.